I found myself with my head outside of the womb of my mother. His eyes went from almost jet black to like pure blue during the process. You know, when the heart breaks, there's an opening. There's a great opening into a big, big space. It was maybe the first moment of clarity and honesty and the first real connection I'd ever had to the universe. We are all inherent, pure enlightened consciousness and wisdom and compassion. We just are in different stages of unveiling. So that's what keeps us alive. We put our energies out there and we get blessed back. The Mirror Cave. The Mirror Cave, episode 27. Tom DeVita's customer. A retired tattoo artist talks about meeting legendary American tattooers Mike Malone and Tom DeVita encountering the artwork of Sailor Jerry in person and the first time he ever saw magic happen. So one day uh, Malone ran into DeVita on the street and he's like, where are you going, DeVita? And DeVita's like, oh, my toilet's plugged. I got to go to the plumbing supply house down on Canal Street. And so Malone decides to join him. So they go down to Canal Street and um, DeVita is walking around the shop He's looking carefully, moving slowly, you know, and Malone assumes he's going to get a plunger or maybe a snake, you know, get the clog out of the toilet. DeVita walks over and sees this box of plumber's candles, which are these old, like they were hard wax and plumbers used them to light them to check for leaks in pipes. I think it's because you could see the flame move. I'm not really sure, but they're these hard wax candles. So he sees this box of plumber's candles and he picks one, goes up to the counter, pays for it. And they split. They go back to his house. And DeVita sets the candle on the back of the toilet like it's a votive candle. Lights it. And the next day his toilet was fine. <laughs> so I ended up going to Honolulu alone. Because... Uh, I'd had a fight with my girlfriend at the time and decided to be a jerk and not bring her along. You know, I think we might've broken up, but, um, I'd broken up with her half a dozen times. The poor girl, she's a beautiful young girl. And, uh, I, I broke up with her once because I found out she couldn't spell Wednesday. And it just created this dissonance in my mind where I'm like, I, how far can this thing go? And I broke up with her. This, this breakup was not spelling related, but we'd gotten into some fights. So I ended up going to Honolulu without her. And so instead of spending uh, my time on the beach with my 21 year old honey colored stripper girlfriend, very affectionate, drinking fruity drinks and rubbing coconut oil into her back, I, uh, spent it in a dark windowless room on the filthiest street in Chinatown in Honolulu in this tattoo shop with a guy named Mike Malone, who, uh, who was a very, very large, very angry man. But it was, uh, Malone had inherited the shop from uh, Sailor Jerry. When Sailor Jerry died, he had a short list of people who could, he would allow to inherit it. And the first two passed on it and Malone took it. And if he had not taken it, Sailor Jerry stipulated in his will that he wanted all of his artwork burned, everything completely burned so that scratchers couldn't get it, you know? But, and now it's very hard to communicate to people 
it was a secret club <laughs> at that time, you know. And he was the only American to have purple for years. He had figured out this, this way to get it to work, and he kept it really secret. And when he would get letters from other tattooers with technical stuff, he would cut out all of the key words from the letters, like the chemicals or the names of, of different products, so that just in case some sort of unskilled tattooer found it, they would not get the secret and be able to work their way up the ranks and compete with a respectable practitioner, you know? So it was like a really different time and a really different place. And I was hanging out with Malone and I'd planned to get my chest tattooed from him. And, um, he, he was a very difficult guy. He was, he was kind of a genius and he just spent 20 years in this windowless room tattooing the whoever came in in Chinatown. And this was long after the big Navy days, like when Sailor Jerry was there, you know, the fleet was in all the time and there was a lot of action. And by the time I was there, it was the 90s and Chinatown had become sort of like very decrepit. There were still some hookers around, but they were pretty gnarly. It wasn't like the, the 40s. All I wanted was a tattoo on my chest, you know, and but he didn't want to tattoo anyone at this point. I mean, he was just, people would come in and ask for something. He would stare at them with these like red rimmed eyes and just ignore them until they like walked out. And so he put me off and put me off. And then finally I was like, oh, uh, just, just we'll, we'll go to the vault and pick something. So he brought me to the vault, which was this safe deposit place, which was not a bank because if it's insured by the feds, the feds can break in and see what you got in there legally. So this was a place for like shadier transactions, you know? So we went to this private vault, which had just old Chinese women with boxes stuffed with money and gold. And he pulls out these two boxes of old tattoo flash, you know, and I'm going through this old stuff. And of course, Sailor Jerry was the master, master American tattooer. His drawings were just so balanced and perfect. And this is stuff that you could never see. There just weren't reproductions anywhere. It was like, it was pre-internet and the, the books on him had not even been published. So this was the real deal. It's like magical for me, you know, as a young tattooer, it's just going through this stuff. But then I'd pick something and Malone would be like, nah, it looks like something to be carved on a gun stock. And then, so finally he ended up saying, just pick a pin up. And I picked a pin up and he put it, he wouldn't put it on my chest. So that's kind of irrelevant to the story I'm about to tell, but <laughs> that's the, the, the context for what we were doing there. And so I just hung out with him in this, uh, in this little room and he just told stories for a week, basically. His intellect was amazing because he, he was a truly sensitive art guy and he would just wax on about the, a Bernard composition that he'd seen 30 years ago and how he just could not figure out how he placed the tree right in the middle and yet it was still very dynamic composition and stuff. And then like 10 seconds later, He''d be telling a story about how this Australian biker beat someone so badly that they were unconscious with bones broken and used them to mop up a puddle of urine. You know, it was just like that kind of thing. So it was really interesting. He had started tattooing in the 60s in New York when it was illegal and he'd run into a guy named Tom DeVita on the street who had tattoos on his legs. And Malone had been a photographer at that time, like a commercial photographer. 
and he met Davida and they, they started, he took some photos of him and they started to hang out and he got really interested in tattooing and Davida was just starting out as well. And so they became kind of buddies and Davida tattooed on the east side and Malone tattooed on the west side, both illegally. But the place that Davida tattooed was a very bizarre situation where there was this artist named Richard O. Tyler, who was a, a legitimate fine artist. His stuff was in collections. And he had gotten some money together and bought this old synagogue on uh, East 4th near Avenue D. And he'd opened up this, uh, he called it the Uranian Phalanstery. And it was this sort of, it was like a church, but it was kind of like a very bohemian beatnik style church where they believed in Tibetan Buddhism and astrology and kind of a random collection of stuff, including a lot of conspiracy theory and like, you know, 60s power politics. But, um, and the whole place was decorated, saturated with decorations, like a, a folk art kind of environment. And they had the interiors of pianos in the hallways. And on the Sundays, I think it was Sundays, they would have their services, which was basically this giant jam session. And it being the Lower East Side in the early 60s, you know, the jazz cast would show up and it would be just this monstrous party with, you know, people playing all sorts of instruments. And I can't remember all the names of the jazz guys were there. I know Charlie Hayden was there and there was a bunch of other people like heavyweights and other people that you never heard of, but it was a crazy scene. And um, Tyler actually did some tattoos, but he... Now, it does, this is the problem with the saturation of tattooing now. It doesn't sound as crazy at the moment, given the current climate. But at that time, if you wanted a tattoo from Tyler, like, he would, he would do your horoscope chart, decide a good day, and then he would write to the Dalai Lama and ask for auspicious ingredients to include in the ink. And he would do all this ritual and then you'd come and he would choose the design and he would, sometimes it would be just little dots or whatever. He was a very odd kind of new age cat for the early sixties, you know? So Malone started hanging out in the scene a little bit and he said he knew that he had entered this other world when he was over at the Fallonstery and Tom lived in the house next door, which was kind of part of the scene. Tom opened his closet door and in the, in the closet, there was just an iguana living there. And that for Malone was a moment like, this is insane. So, you know, so then while I was in Honolulu, he starts telling me, I had never met Davida at this point. I'd heard a few things about him, you know, but, um, he started telling me these stories about him that really, really put the hook in my mouth about Davida. Uh, one of them was, you know, since they were all in this Tibetan Buddhism thing, they'd gotten the, uh, the Lotus prayer tattooed on their, uh, on their wrists, you know, Om Mani Padme Hum. And, um, so Davida had heard that there was a Tibetan Lama coming. So a bunch of the guys from the Phalanstery went over there and they got their tattoos blessed. And the law, so the Lama does a little ritual and blesses them. And then, uh, a few months later, there's another, there's another Lama in town. And a friend of Davida's says, oh, come on, man, I want to get my tattoo blessed too. You know, I didn't go last time. So Davida goes with him. They get there and the friend gets up and it blesses the friend's tattoo. And then Davida gets up there and the Lama looks at it and says, this one's already been blessed. 
So that's odd. But then there's another one. Davida owned this ring that was a blood opal. And the legend about blood opals is that they always try and return to their uh, owner. And this particular ring had been owned by Lowe of the Broadway writing, songwriting duo Lerner and Lowe. I forget what they wrote, but it was a famous thing in the 40s or 30s, I think. And so Davida had this ring and he said he would, it would constantly get away from him in the house. Like it would escape because it, there's this legend that it's trying to get back to Lowe, you know. And eventually Lowe died and so Davida no longer had any trouble with his ring because he was the rightful owner. So it was, it was no problem. And Davida was in Hawaii visiting Malone. And Malone was um, having relations with a female customer in the shop. And so Davida was up at, around the corner at the Hubba Hubba Club, the strip club around the corner in Chinatown. And uh, it was really hot in the Hubba Hubba Club. And Davida's drinking with these Hawaiian guys and stuff, and his hand's getting really sweaty, and his ring keeps slipping off his finger. And he's worried about losing the ring, so he takes it, and he buckles it into the tine of his belt so he won't lose it. So Malone finishes with the girl. They come up to the house, uh, to the to the Hubba Hubba Club, rather, and he's like, well, let's stop at the beach on the way home. I got to wash the smell off of me before I go home to my wife. And so they go to the beach and it's like 1.30 in the morning or something, you know, it's pitch black out. They go down there and they take off their clothes. They go swimming, put their clothes back on, get back in the car, start driving back to Malone's house. And suddenly DeVita realizes my ring, it was in the, it was in his belt and he took his clothes off and he lost it. And Malone is like, you're not going to find the ring, Tom. We'll go back in the morning and look for it. It's pitch black out. You know, we don't even know where we were on the beach. And Davida's stubborn. He's like, no, no, we got to go back now. I got to get the ring, got to get the ring. So eventually Malone relents and he goes back to the beach and he's just, he's just like, he's not going to, he's not having any of this. He's like, I'll sit in the car, Tom, you go look for your ring. And he said, Davida got out of the car, ran down to the water's edge, bent down, picked up the ring and ran back into the car. (laughs) But then we get to the most, one of the most important stories of my life. And that's the Bill Heine story. So there was this guy named Bill Heine. And he was a real bohemian New York guy in the, in the 50s and 60s in New York. He, he had hair down to his butt in like the early 60s, late 50s. Like, I mean, the Beatles hadn't even come and he's completely out of his mind. He was a jazz musician and uh, he was the last guy to see Charlie Parker alive because he was shooting dope with him the night that Parker OD'd. So he's a really strange cat and he's involved with the phalanstery. And as part of this scene, I don't know who ran into this peanut butter chemist, but there was a chemist from a peanut butter factory that they had hooked up with and they had gotten this chemist to make them amphetamines. So the phalanstery is kind of this like takeoff point for these homemade amphetamines in the early 60s in the East Village. So it's kind of a popular spot and people are coming and going, a lot of crazy characters. And so objects accumulate, you know, in trade and whatever. So it's already an extremely highly articulated environment. And so there's stuff everywhere. And um, 
so Bill Heine would come by periodically and he would go pick up a big bag of speed and he would just walk the city for weeks and he would be the center of this party, you know, and he, they would go and take over someone's apartment, you know, and, and just have a speed party until the rent wasn't paid and then they'd move on to another party, you know, and David always said that Warhol had watched Bill Heine and kind of picked up a lot of his ideas about where, how to run the factory from Bill, you know. Bill Heine one day comes by and gives Tom this Buddhist bell. And Tom notices that whenever he rings the bell, Bill Heine and his friends show up. And he starts thinking about it. So every time he rings his bell, Bill Heine and his friends show up. And it's, it's interrupting his work. And he, he has this logic where he's messing with the bell in kind of a profane way because it's a religious bell. And so the bell is is messing with him by bringing a bunch of clowns around to mess with his, his situation. So Tom figures this out, and he puts the bell in his closet behind a bunch of stuff packed away so no one will mess with it and he can continue on with his work. A couple years after that, Bill Heine's wife dies, and Bill has just gone off on one of his tears. He's just come by picked up a bunch of speed and started off on his party. And so since it's a Tibetan Buddhist establishment, they're all freaking out because they need to read the Book of the Dead to the corpse. And um, the morgue will not let anyone except the family in to see the corpse. So they're all flipping out. And at this time, Malone came by and he's a cynical, atheistic. He does not believe any of this nonsense they got going on. So Malone comes by, this big gruff dude, and they're all flipping out. And he remembers the Bill Heine bell. And he says, Tom, why don't you just ring the bell? Just to be a jerk. And Tom, immediately his face lights up and he goes to the closet and he's throwing out stuff out of there like it's a, it's an old TV show, you know, tennis rackets and bicycle wheels. And, you know, he's throwing stuff out of this closet. And finally he gets the bell. And he rings the bell. And 30 seconds later, there's a knock on the door. And it's Bill Heine. And Malone said the hair was standing up on his neck. He'd never seen magic happen. He was completely just paralyzed with awe that this had just happened. And Tom just kind of turned to him and was like, thanks. As if he had reminded him where he left his keys, you know. So about... Ten years later, after Malone told me that story in uh, Honolulu, I was up visiting Tom at his his new place in Newburgh, New York, upstate from, from the city. And I was visiting with a friend, my friend Bob, and Tom was moving some stuff around. It, it's still very, it's this huge cluttered situation. It's beautiful. But he's moving some stuff around to show us some artwork, and he knocks over this, like, assemblage pile onto the floor and he turns to me, he's like, you know what I just did? And I'm like, no. So I just rang the bell. And I'd been wanting to see this bell since the day I met him. You know, I heard this story and I'm like, I got to see this bell. And he would, he would never show it to me. But apparently it was, it was hidden in plain sight on the shelf. And when Malone had told me the story, he'd make this giant gesture with the bell that made it look like a Salvation Army bell. But it was actually just this tiny little thing, you know. 
And so I'm like, you rang the bell. Oh my God, that's the bell. And I'm freaking out. And my friend Bob is like, what bell? And I'm like, the Bill Heine bell. And he's like, I, what bill? Who's Bill Heine? And I'm like, I never told you the story. I tell everyone the story. Like everyone I've ever met, I've told the Bill Heine story to, you know? And he, so I tell Bob the whole story I just told you with the bell and the morgue and the whole deal. And as soon as I finish the story, there's a knock at the door. And I look out and Tom's got a, a wind, clear window in his door and standing on the porch is Bill Heine. And all the hair on my body stood up, not my head, but all of my arms, my neck. And it's happening right now as we speak, just this chill. Me and Bob look at each other and like, oh my God, it's Bill Heine. It was one of the most devastating moments of my life. I had never seen anything like that happen. And I go to the door and I open the door. I'm like, Bill, Tom just rang the bell. And Bill's just like, oh, that freaking bell. And just pushes past me and goes in and nothing else was said about it. So I, I later moved to New York and my first thing was I'm going to have both my thighs tattooed by DeVita. And I started going up to visit him and I kind of got a sense of his story. The instant word got out on the Lower East Side that he was tattooing, he had a line down the block. And so he would open up at early in the morning and there would be a line waiting and he would just let him come in and he would tattoo him and it would come out terrible. He'd be like, I guess that's not the way next. And he just like went through them trying to figure it out. And he slowly started to talk to other tattooers and develop more technique and stuff. But he had this endless supply of people basically. So he, cause he was the, he was probably the only guy tattooing on the lower half of Manhattan at that time. Cause they had just made it illegal. And in fact, he was one of the only people to get arrested for tattooing because they came in and they busted his shop and they took everything. They took the flash, the sterilizer, everything. They left this one chair that was too heavy. And the only way he got out of it was that, um, they had charged him. There was some technicality. I think they had charged him with running a tattoo shop, but that wasn't actually illegal. Tattooing was doing tattoos was illegal and they had done it wrong. So he actually got his stuff back. But after that, he had this very strict policy about things where you had to call from the payphone on the corner and he'd look down and see you were at the corner and then you'd get let in and led up to his little strange world with all this stuff. But because he was in this crazy scene, he was also like hanging at the Cedar Bar with the abstract expressionists and the San Remo Bar was his favorite. But like he was involved in this scene in a very tangential way, but I think it influenced his style, certainly. De Kooning was the only one that would say hello to him, he said. But he was there the night Franz Klein got invited to JFK's inauguration. And so he's around all these people, and he began to develop the style. He always had a shaky hand. He had essential tremors. So even as a kid, like when they tried to teach him to write, he, he would have to press so hard to keep the, his hand from shaking that he would dig holes in the paper until they finally just kind of gave up on him. So his hand always shook. And it, it didn't shake 
when you were, he was sitting still, but as soon as he would try to do something, that's when it would begin to shake. So that was something he had to contend with. Fortunately, he had this trapped audience. So he developed a style around it and it was a very kind of expressionistic style. And it's these weird confluence of factors that made him so unique because he combination of having instead of learning to be a perfect illustrator and doing clean lines and there is this obsession in professional tattooing of perfectly clean you know smooth solid color smooth fades very smooth lines and so he's coming at it with this shaking hand and this somewhat expressionistic aesthetic so he and the flash that he drew was this rough stuff with colored pencil on wood. So it already had this very strange vibe and he would just go, I've never seen anyone else do this, but he had this very direct modernist approach in that a very, he had a very direct connection with the medium and his marks. That was the mark. It wasn't trying to be something else. You know, the mark was made like an expressionist painter would make, like it represents something, an image but the mark itself has this power to it. And so he would do these very expressionistic tattoos, which he could not have gotten away with anywhere else. And he developed the sense of composition, this incredibly sophisticated, tense sense of composition. Like whenever he would place something, it would never be, of course, the standard ideal is you get it right in the middle of the arm. That's the perfect placement like right there, you know. very simplistic visually whereas he would place things in these odd ways and he also had this idea that all his all his tattoo everything was thirty dollars it was like you're getting a tattoo with thirty dollars and for thirty dollars though he kind of felt like he should fill that that area of the body you know so if you got an eagle on your forearm he might just take some blue and just start scraping in big swirls of cloud, just freehand, just straight needle to skin, dragging it up your arm and kind of composing it as he went. Like people would look down and be like, oh my God, did not know that was going to happen. And his other classic thing, way to fill space was on Black Panthers, was to take the the blood scratches that you know, in a, in the traditional way, come off the, the, the claws and he would just drag them across your whole chest and create these swoops of just red blood swirls. So it was a very different thing, you know, and it was something that it, more spontaneous and more sophisticated to my eye. I mean, of course, a lot of people can't see it, you know, they just see it as sloppy or incompetent. So when I started going up to Newburgh in New York, it was just magical because every time you go there would be either new stuff he created or stuff you didn't notice or another layer would have been exposed i for a while he was doing paintings of landscapes in these sardine cans and they would be posted all over and he would just find a new material and and use it in even in the 70s he was doing tattoo flash where he just like put a milk crate and spray paint over it so it's a bunch of grids and just hang that up as if someone would choose that you know his home where that he tattoos out is the most beautiful place i've ever been in my life just so incredibly dense and layered like there's layers of paper tattoo flash on the wall then there's 
grape crate slats placed with pencil drawings on them. On them, there's on top of them is some other stuff. And there's just these layers of things. And on the floor, every time he does a house painting job in his house or something, he takes the extra paint and he just paints designs on the floor. And floor to ceiling, the place is also very dark. And there's just assemblages everywhere and objects that you cannot figure out what they were. And they're just his his design aesthetic, his composition is just unique and amazing. So the, it's just this playground of just amazing images and more visual input than you can possibly take in. I mean, it, it completely changed my life having seen that. Uh, the other day, someone was asking me, you know, what do you want on your tombstone? It's kind of like this new age thing about what you're going to do with your life. And, you know, what do you want said after you're dead? You know, what do you want on your tombstone? And I thought of it a while ago. And really and truly, if it's said on my tombstone, here lies Tom DeVita's customer, that would be perfectly fine with me. I'd be cool with that. That, to me, is one of my greatest accomplishments. Tom DeVita is one of America's greatest living folk artists. You can find him on Instagram at Tom DeVita. That's T-H-O-M-D-E-V-I-T-A. The Mirror Cave is produced by Scott Harrison, themed by Tectonic Crystal. You can subscribe on iTunes and reach us at themirrorcave at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.